And if you would turn in your copy of the scriptures to Acts chapter 11. In case you're visiting with us, um, we have been preaching through the book of Acts. And so now we come to chapter 11. Please hear the word of God. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air, and I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, What God has made clean do not call common. This happened three times. And all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were, sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen an angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as us, just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as He gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Let's pray. God, as your word has now been read in the hearing of your people, so I pray now for the help of your spirit as I stand to proclaim it. Father, I pray not only uh, for your help to be given to me personally, but also that you would give your people ears to hear, eyes to see, hearts to believe. Um, and obey your word. And Father, if there are any here who, do, who are strangers to the Lord Jesus, I pray that you would draw them to him this morning. I pray in his name. Amen. By way of review, it's been a couple of weeks uh, since since uh, I was able to stand and preach. I appreciate everyone's prayers uh, for me as I was sick last week. But I want to briefly call your attention to Acts chapter 10, just to give you a, a little bit of a review. Acts chapter 10 was a major turning point in the life of the early church. In Acts chapter 10, uh, 
Peter is called by God to go and proclaim the gospel to a man named Cornelius and also to his family. The only problem is that Cornelius was a Gentile. And God was not only calling Peter to go and preach to him, but also to enter into his home. This was a major no-no for Jews um, to go into the house and eat with a Gentile person. But after a series of visions, Peter then becomes ready to obey God without hesitation. So Peter goes, he preaches the gospel to Cornelius and Cornelius' family and even many of Cornelius' friends and co-workers. And they all seem to come to faith in Jesus Christ. And as wonderful as this is, it represents an occasion that is just fraught with all kinds of danger. It caused such an uproar in the early church that um, the church eventually had to call its first general assembly. We find an account of that in Acts chapter 15. It's called the Jerusalem Council. They had to, to consider the questions that were raised by Gentiles coming to faith in Jesus Christ. We'll come to Acts 15 and we'll read about that, that general assembly or that Jerusalem council. Um, there in Acts 15, the question was, how do we fellowship with the Gentiles? But before they could consider that question of how could they fellowship with them and what should that fellowship look like, they had to consider a prior question, the question that is before us this morning. And that question is, um, will we fellowship with the Gentiles? Not how will we, but will we? Will we really accept that a Gentile can become a question? I mean, sorry, that it can become a Christian. And so that's the question here before us as we turn to chapter 11. Look at chapter 11, verses 1 through 3. Now the apostles and the brothers who, who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him. Saying, you went to uncircumcised men and you ate with them. So that Peter is going to give his answer. I find a few things interesting here. One thing that I find interesting is that there were members of the church that were willing to criticize Peter. Um, I see in Christendom today uh, a person will will start a church and they'll call themselves an apostle and they set themselves up as being above criticism or above above question and whatever they say is the is uh, the way it's going to be. Um, or we have these these people who start these mega churches and they set themselves up as being above any kind of accountability. Here Peter is being criticized and he doesn't say, I am above criticism, I am an apostle. No, he defends his actions. The apostle Peter knew that he was under the authority of Jesus Christ. He knew that he was a man and that he did, did indeed need, need to, to um, give the rationale for his actions to the church. 
We're going to come to Acts 15. I'm getting well ahead of myself here. Um, but you're going to see that he gives the same rationale. He, he gives the same arguments to the church in Acts 15. And his argument basically is, this is what I experienced and what I saw God do. Paul and Barnabas then get up and say, well, here's what, God, what we've seen God do. And the church remains, it seems, unconvinced by both Peter and Paul and Barnabas. And finally James in Acts 15 gets up and quotes Scripture. And he exposes Scripture and he says, this is according to Scripture. And the church says, aha, we understand and we agree. The church submits to Scripture. But here, Peter gives his answer to the church. I find something else interesting in Peter's answer that is equally, maybe even more fascinating. And it's not really his answer itself, but it's the fact that Luke, who is the author of of Acts, includes his defense. And the reason why I find this fascinating is Peter's defense in Acts 11 is the same story that we have just read twice in Acts chapter 10. And you know the story. We've read it for now three weeks. Um, where God said, uh, where God gave Peter a vision, and this on this this vision had a sheep, and this on the sheep were were uh, all these unclean animals, and God told Peter kill and eat. And Peter argued with God. Finally, he submitted um, to God, and then as he submitted to God, there was a knock at the door, and it was Cornelius's friends knocking at the door asking for Peter, and so then Peter said, "You've come to see me. God has taught me." that I should go with you, and so he goes without hesitation. So we read it in Acts chapter 10 as it happened, and then we read it again in Acts chapter 10 as Peter retold it to Cornelius. Now we read it again in Acts chapter 11 as he's telling it to the church, and then it's going to be retold in its entirety again in Acts chapter 15. The same story told four times. And what I find interesting here is that um, when they wrote books in the 2,000 years ago, they didn't write in books like we have with a binding. They wrote it on a scroll, and the scrolls were only so long. In fact, the book of Acts is just about the length, the maximum length that you could have on a scroll. And so that means that words are premium. Luke is telling the history of the early church, and he has limited space if he's going to put it all in one scroll which maybe accounts for the kind of abrupt ending at, uh, in Acts uh, 28, um, because maybe he ran out of room. I don't know. But anyway, um, words are a premium. Space is a premium. And yet he tells the same story four times, and he uses uh, virtually the same um, identical wording in each story. This underscores to me just how big a deal this was for the Gentiles to come to faith in Jesus Christ. How big a question it was for the early church that Luke feels compelled to include this story four different times. After 2,000 years of church history, it's easy for us to overlook how big an issue this was uh, for those who were experiencing this, for those who were... were, uh, 
uh, Jewish Christians and seeing these Gentiles come to faith. And of course the church did answer this question. Will we fellowship with the Gentiles? They, they answered it in the affirmative. How do we know that they answered it in the affirmative? Well, we know from Scripture. But we, we are the answer to that question. I dare say um, very few of you, if any, here in this room are of Jewish descent. I'm a Gentile, and yet I am a Christian. The church answered this question, will we fellowship with Gentiles? Will we allow Gentiles to become members of the church? Our presence here in this room, our faith in Jesus Christ, our membership in the worldwide church of Christ, being being allowed a member in the body of Christ, is proof that they did answer that question in the affirmative. So, what I want to do, rather than considering that question, I want us to consider a different question this morning. I want to consider the question, what is baptism? And what does baptism, the sign of baptism, mean for us? So our focus really this morning is going to be on um, Acts 11, verses 15 through 18 this morning. First of all, we're going to notice that the sign of baptism is symbolic of baptism with the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 15 with me. Uh, Peter says, As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. That first little phrase, as I began to speak, I want to pause right there. And I want you to turn back to Acts chapter 10. And look at the account here. Peter says, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them. And that can give us the wrong impression that just in the the first words he uttered, the Holy Spirit fell. That's not exactly the case. Um, Because he starts preaching in Acts chapter 10 to uh, Cornelius in verse 34. And he continues through verse 43. And it's only at verse 44, and I'll read verse 44. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. So it was not with his first words. He had actually spoken quite a bit. What did he speak? He proclaimed to them the gospel. Summed up in verse 43, to him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. So he's been proclaiming the gospel to them. And as they are hearing the gospel, the Holy Spirit comes down. They believe. They trust in Jesus Christ. Before Peter explained the gospel to them, they were not saved. Cornelius had a wonderful testimony. He was giving alms. He was praying. But even through all these things, he was not a believer. Okay? God was at work. God was drawing him. But he wasn't a believer. In fact, that is very clear if you turn back to Acts chapter 11, verses 13 and 14. And he told us, this is Peter's explanation, and he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. So even though Cornelius had been praying, even though he had been giving gifts to the poor, 
even though he had some sense that he needed God, he wasn't saved. That's why Peter came to proclaim to them the message, as it says in verse 14. Um, the message by which you will be saved. And as he proclaimed the gospel, they believed. And the Holy Spirit fell down. Um, and he was the one who enabled them to believe the message of the gospel. Now watch this. This is important. If you miss this uh, point that I'm about to make, you will not be able to understand the sermon. Peter in verse 15 connects baptism with the event of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 and he also connects this baptism of the Holy Spirit with John's baptism uh, back at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. In other words um, I'm sorry and here's the kicker Look at verse 17. Verse 17. Uh, Peter is, is summing up his argument to the church there in Jerusalem. If then God gave the same gift to them as He gave to us when we believed. I'm trying to highlight that. When we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Who was I that I could stand in God's way? In other words, he's connecting the baptism of the Holy Spirit with Pentecost and with John's baptism and he's saying that that Pentecost uh, when the Holy Spirit came down and when the, the, the Holy Spirit came down upon uh, Cornelius points to when they first believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Baptism is a sign of the Holy Spirit given to believers when they believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. There's, this point has several applications. The first application is that receiving the Holy Spirit is not an event subsequent or after you become a Christian. It's not subsequent to salvation. It's not a second blessing that is given to those who have reached a certain level of maturity in the Christian life. You receive the Holy Spirit the moment you become a believer. In fact, it is the Holy Spirit who causes you to be a believer. See, in this idea that you become a believer and then at some subsequent time you receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit, well, that's an error. It's an error that's come to dominate many of the Pentecostal or charismatic denominations. I'm not going to spend any more time talking about that because there are more important points ahead of, uh, before us. But Peter says very clearly, verse 17, uh, that the Holy Spirit... Uh, was given to them when they believed in the Lord Jesus, not after. And baptism is a sign of that event. 
The second application is that baptism is symbolic of your regeneration. I've already implied that, uh, but let me make it more bold. Listen to Titus 3, verse 5. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. Did you hear that? Did you pick up on the phrases, washing of regeneration, renewal of the Holy Spirit, and then this phrase, poured out on us? Paul is writing to, Tim, uh, writing to Titus. Titus was his young protege. He had been uh, training Titus to be a minister. And so he's using technical language here that Titus would readily understand. And he's speaking to Titus about our regeneration about our being born again, about our being made alive spiritually in Christ uh, by the work of the Holy Spirit. But he is couching that language in the language of baptism. So he uses washing of regeneration. He uses renewal by the Holy Spirit. He talks about the Holy Spirit being poured out on us. This means that baptism is symbolic of your regeneration. In other words, you did not choose Jesus Christ because you were exceptionally brilliant or because you were a good person in your heart. You chose to follow Jesus Christ because the Holy Spirit regenerated you. Listen to Ephesians uh, chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. It is by grace you have been saved. And that's what I'm driving at. That last phrase, that's the application that I'm driving at. You did not save yourself. You did not choose God. He chose you and He raised you when you were dead spiritually. Raised you to life in Jesus Christ and gave you faith to believe in Him. Your salvation is by grace from first to last. It is by grace. It is all by grace. It is only by grace that you have been saved. Third application of this truth uh, is that baptism is symbolic of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Uh, third application is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 and 13. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews are Greeks, slave or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. It is the Holy Spirit who places us into the body of Christ. It means that there are no second class citizens in the kingdom of God. It also means that there are no first class citizens that are above everybody else or anybody else. Paul says that there are Jews and there are Gentiles, or Jews and Greeks, as, our, as the translation from 1 Corinthians 12 says. There are also slaves and free. 
But he's saying regardless of class, regardless of race, you are all one in Jesus Christ. You have been baptized by one Spirit into the one body. Those other distinctions wiped out. Nobody is more important than another. And the sign of baptism is symbolic of the Holy Spirit placing you into the body of Christ. There's an important important fourth application I want you to see as well. In Ephesians chapter 1 verses 13 and 14, it says, In Him you also, also, when you heard the word of truth, I'm sorry, I left out the most important part. In Him you were also sealed uh, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and you believed in Him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is a guarantee of our inheritance until we Require, until we acquire the possession of it to the praise of His glory. In this passage in Ephesians 1, baptism is symbolic of the, the Holy Spirit's seal on your soul. A seal in, in ancient times was an indelible stamp that could not be removed. Almost like branding a cow. They branded a cow because you couldn't remove that brand. And it was in, in ancient times a seal was a proof of ownership that could not be taken away and the Holy Spirit's seal means that you, when you belong to God there is nothing or no one that can remove it neither death nor life neither angels nor demons neither the present nor the future nor any powers neither height nor depth nothing in all of creation He's able to separate you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. Nothing under all creation is able to remove the seal of the Holy Spirit when He is stamped indelibly upon your soul. And baptism is a picture of that seal. When you are, when you are baptized in the waters of life, it's a picture of the inward reality that the Holy Spirit has sealed your soul so that you now belong to God. And there's nothing that is able to remove that seal or separate you from God. He has placed his seal of ownership on you. There's a fifth application that I want to look at. Look at verse 15 again. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit, what? The Holy Spirit fell. Remember the passage from Titus that I quoted earlier in Titus chapter 3? The Holy Spirit whom, whom He poured out on us. The Holy Spirit's pictured as falling, as being poured out. You know where I'm going with this. I believe baptism is a symbol of the Holy Spirit's uh, work. And I believe that it is properly administrated uh, by pouring or by sprinkling upon the head. Um, I baptized uh, Chanel a couple of weeks back. I had a little mercy on her. I kind of more sprinkled than I did pour, but it's typically my habit to pour. Um, any of you men who come for baptism, I won't be as, uh, as stingy with the water. 
Um, but and I can say a lot more about this, um, but I'm going to move on for the sake of time. Let me just say this: for the sake of you who were immersed, um, I am a Presbyterian minister. The baptism with which I received was a baptism of immersion. I didn't come to to uh, believe in sprinkling or pouring until later, a little later in my Christian life. I was immersed. Have I been rebaptized by sprinkling or pouring? No. It was a sufficient sign of baptism. Uh, I am just as much baptized as any Presbyterian who was poured or sprinkled. Um, of course, Baptists would say more so since I was completely wet. But, but uh, I was immersed and I feel no uh, compunction to be rebaptized. I'm going to transition and uh, to another major point, but it will be rather short. And that is the sign of baptism. It's not only a sign of the Holy Spirit's baptism, but it's also symbolic of our entire salvation in Jesus Christ. The sign of baptism points to our salvation. Baptism is symbolic of the death and burial and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's also symbolic of the work of the Holy Spirit who brings all the benefits of Christ's death to us. Uh, and his, his death, burial, and resurrection. He takes those benefits that Christ purchased for us on the cross and secured by His resurrection. He takes those benefits and He applies them to us. Also, the water that we use in baptism is uh, symbolic of the cleansing that we have in Jesus Christ, that He forgives, of our, forgives us of our sins. And I want to return to this question of... How can Christ's benefits that were purchased for us 2,000 years ago then be applied to us today? How can those benefits pass over 2,000 years to become yours? That's a significant question. The way we become partakers of what Christ purchased 2,000 years ago is by the Holy Spirit taking us and placing us into Jesus Christ. I have my Bible here. I should have prepared for this. didn't think about this. This may not stick all the way down. But that's what the Holy Spirit does. He takes us, places us into Jesus Christ. And no matter from what angle God sees us, He sees us in Christ. Also, that's the reason why the Bible, why Paul can say so confidently, neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither present or future, neither height nor death, nothing is able to separate us from the love of God. It's because we have been placed by the Holy Spirit into Jesus. Anything that's going to come in and take us away from Jesus has to go through Him to get to us. The Holy Spirit places us into Jesus. So, all of those benefits that Christ purchased for us are ours because we're in Jesus. Remember the passage I read from 1 Corinthians chapter 12? Paul said, for in one spirit, we were baptized in one body, we were placed into that one body. What's that body? That's the body of Christ. 
Paul's point in Romans 6, when he says that we've been baptized into Christ, he means that we have been united. We've been united to Him. He uses those words. We have been united to Him. Well, what does that mean? It means that because Christ died for our sins, and we are in Him, then we have been justified. He died, we're in Him, therefore our sins are forgiven because of His payment uh, for them. It also means, because Christ is the Son of God and we are in Him, that means that God has adopted us, uh, us as His sons. He's the Son, we're in Him, therefore we're adopted as His children. Also, it means that because Christ is holy and we are in Christ, now we are holy. And because we are holy, then the Holy Spirit is, is working in us to make us who we are. We're holy in Christ, and so He is making us more and more through sanctification to be more like who we are in Christ. Also, because Christ died to die no more, He is in heaven. He, he is not going to leave heaven until He comes back for the church. But nothing... He's he's the king over all and there's nothing that can knock him off the throne because he is securely in heaven and we are in heaven. What does that mean for our eternal security? It means that we are as secure as Christ is because we are in him. Also, Christ has ascended into heaven and we're in Christ. So where's our citizenship according to the book of Philippians? Our citizenship is in heaven. And so the the work of the Holy Spirit is pictured in baptism because it teaches us that we have been placed into Jesus Christ and all of Christ's benefits are now ours in Him. Our baptism symbolizes all of that. And then finally, the sign of baptism is an important act of testifying to Jesus Christ. The baptism of the Holy Spirit here in Acts chapter 11 was important because it testified that the Gentiles have now come to faith in Jesus Christ. How could... How could Peter know that the the Gentiles, Cornelius and his household and his friends, how could he know that they had been baptized into the Holy Spirit? Or baptized by the Holy Spirit? Well, if you turn back over to Acts chapter 10, uh, verses 44 through 46, while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word, and the believers from the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed, because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. How did they know this? Verse 46, for they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. So how do they know that the Holy Spirit has come down and, and has baptized them? Because they are speaking in tongues. And this is interesting. The only time that people spoke in tongues upon their conversion was four times in the book of Acts. Pentecost as a sign that God was pouring out the Spirit in fulfillment of Joel. 
uh, in uh, chapter 7 when the gospel came to the Samaritans in Acts chapter 10 when the gospel came to the Gentiles and then in Acts chapter 19 we'll see this later um, there were a group of believers who had only been baptized and John's baptism didn't really understand had never even heard the Holy Spirit and they were baptized then but there were a lot of other people that were converted in the book of Acts Lydia who was down washing her, her fine clothes she was converted she didn't speak in, in tongues there were others throughout the book of Acts um, the Ethiopian eunuch was converted he didn't speak in tongues these are high points these four points are high points that God wants to especially teach his people about his salvation it is not required that you speak in tongues to become a Christian in fact the, the vast majority of people who come to, to faith in Christ in Acts did not speak in tongues these were simply high points in the history of salvation but it was an important sign that God indeed had given um, his salvation to the Gentiles. Peter says this, he explains this. He says, so who was I, in verse 17, that I could stand in God's way when they heard these things? Peter's opponents fell silent. They glorified God, saying, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. In other words... It was an important sign testifying to the reality of their faith. Many people don't bother getting baptized uh, today. Many people don't bother joining church. Why do we get baptized? First of all, because the Lord Jesus commands it. Secondly, it is an important testimony to the watching world of your faith in Jesus Christ. People say, well, it's only a sign. But it, but it points to very important realities. To give you a little example, those of you who have small children, who have had small children, you know what's happening. You know what happens when you're driving down the road and you see the golden arches. And I don't even need to say what it is. Everybody knows what it is. And the, the kids start screaming, "Mommy, mommy, McDonald's!" And the mommy says, well, let's wave to the golden arches. Let's wave to McDonald's. And so everybody's waving and they're excited thinking, Mommy's seeing the golden arches. And then as you're going by, the mom says, let's wave goodbye to the golden arches. And we're not stopping. Are the kids simply happy at waving at the golden arches? No, they want you to turn in. You know, I've noticed, and I know I'm over time, but I've noticed that... that um, you know, McDonald's really doesn't market their, their commercials to children anymore. And I was thinking about that. Well, why not? I think somehow or another they put it in their food that's now in the genetic makeup of every child. When they see the golden arches, mommy, mommy, McDonald's. I heard that they put uh, sugar in like all of their, their, their food. Even the Big Mac has sugar in it. Maybe that's what But anyway, it's a sign. And it points to the reality of the Big Mac. But baptism is a sign that points to the reality of, um, of our faith in Christ. It doesn't help you get into heaven. Okay? The thief on the cross was not baptized. But it's a sign. And here's where I think we get it all mixed up. We think it's something, if, if it doesn't benefit us, 
then why do it? It's not important. But here is what's important about baptism. Baptism is not simply something for us. Baptism is an important testimony to God's grace. All this stuff I've been talking about that baptism points to, about the Holy Spirit's work in your life, about the salvation that we have in Jesus Christ that is perfect and secure. Baptism points to God's work. It's not simply something for us to do. The importance of baptism It's not that it helps us. The importance of baptism is that it points to the perfect salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. It points to God and His grace. That's why baptism is so important. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we've gone over, but this is Your Word and we don't have enough teaching on baptism and so I pray that uh, as we have considered this sign of baptism, Father, I pray that it would encourage your people uh, who have received that sign, encourage them with all the grace that you have poured out upon them. Father, if there are any here who do not know Jesus Christ, Father, as we have considered your grace that has been poured out through Jesus Christ, that has been poured out uh, upon His people by the Holy Spirit, Father, I pray that you would create in them a holy jealousy whereby they would flee to Jesus to have the grace that you so willingly and freely give to your people. I pray in His name. Amen.